it's in the Wall Street Journal if you're uh, potentially doing research on Intel. I still wish the price was uh, 20% down from where it is, but I have a feeling I'll get my chance when Just the wait. bubble bursts. Yeah, I have a exactly. feeling too, and I'm excited for you to take that chance and jump into the dry pool. Right. Base plant. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Welcome back. What's up? Did you bring back some fossils? (laughs) I wish. (laughs) Uh, Man, another episode. Uh, You're catching me off guard here, but... Um, there's a lot of Native American uh, reservations down in like near the Four Corners, uh, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and that is uh, it's it's a different world down there, man. And uh, it, it's like over a beer sometime we can have that conversation about how poorly I think we messed that up for those tribes, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, it was a good trip. Thanks for asking. American colonialism. I think we need to have a whole separate. Yeah, I know. Like run away, right? Run away from that on our investing show. And there are more exciting things to talk about, though, right? Uh, You shot over an article this week on Intel, and it looks like not only are they going to start manufacturing chips here, but it looks like there's a lot of positives going for that company that you were talking trash about just three weeks ago, Dougal. Yeah, so I sent you this article with the the caption basically saying, like, this does not give me confidence. (laughs) That that doesn't mean it's not going to... It's not going to work for a little snip snap clippity clip, but I'm saying like it, it looks like they're basically stealing Taiwan uh, semiconductor manufacturing company's playbook a little bit and trying to run it here. And I just don't think it's going to be effective. So we'll see, though. We'll see. Yeah. Well, so what's so interesting without going deep into the weeds on Intel is um, they've tried this before. Right. And there's a reason that Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation is like the dominant world player. But I think the politics are such what's so funny is they're going to up their R&D significantly to try and improve their manufacturing here. But this type of manufacturing is really, really hard. I don't know if we're at five nanometers now or what. But um, back when I was doing a little bit of consulting in the space, they were like talking about 14 nanometers. You know, like this stuff, it's crazy hard to do. Yeah, that's why you got the FABO, right? That's why we were talking like most companies do the fabulous uh, and outsource that. Yep. Agreed. So they talk about upping their R&D spending and fully investing in this. They have a new uh, CEO, but they did not talk about like tax breaks and stuff, which I thought would surely be in their plan. And I bet they have those conversations going on behind the scenes. Anyway, interesting piece. It's in the Wall Street Journal if you're uh, potentially doing research on Intel. I still wish the price was uh, 20% down from where it is, but I have a feeling I'll get my chance when the bubble bursts. Yeah, I have a exactly. feeling too, and I'm excited for you to take that chance and jump into the dry pool. Right. Base plant. <laughs> I can't wait. Actually, but, but on the, uh, sorry, but on, on the, I, I actually put a little bit less of this on Intel and more of it maybe on a, a America. I think generally my, my like, my bearish stance, it's a full macro shift that we have to have on investment around the, in the country, right? We've, for the past 25 years, we've basically said, like, this is not the stuff that America focuses on. Yeah. Right. And so there's just a there's a big macro shift, which might be possible. Right. I mean, Biden philosophically is there. He wants that shift to happen because he came about during the time when 
that's what America was, right? And so like, I, I get that. I just don't know if we'll be able to pull it off, but Intel wants it. So if anyone's going to do it here, it's going to be Intel. Well, but it is fascinating, right? Because like the thought process from the 80s on was kind of like, oh, we're going to do the, the fancier, more um, intellectually challenging work here. Like that's going to be what the US is, or at least that's what we told ourselves. And uh, now you see with like the global chip shortage going on and Ford being like, well, a bunch of people, but Ford is one example, being like, our car shipments are going to be delayed. It's changed so much where chips power everything Everything. that i think people are changing their approach and going this isn't the stuff that you just outsource and give to the cheapest bidder this is like truly important this is a critical piece of our supply chain so we need more control over it true we just haven't been investing for decades like that's the problem yeah and so it's really hard to wrap up so we'll see hey there's one thing i want to tie up because i was pontificating on some crypto stuff uh last week there's i mentioned a fund that i hadn't researched at all um so i just want to clear up as you know no one is buying stuff based on the fun conversations we have here because we're having conversations like we're not doing anything right we're we're having conversations about the interesting stuff this bitwise fund that i mentioned that's a, a crypto etf right B-I-T-W, i never, that one? uh b-i-t-w yeah i have never seen this behavior before Douglas, have you seen it so uh the net asset value of uh ETF is basically think about it in the equity space like right the ETF owns 100 companies you aggregate the total value of all those companies held by the fund and that is the net asset value of the fund in well traded ETFs uh what happens is you're typically very very close to the net asset value of the fund because of the way they do the accounting and because supply and demand matches up and and everything else um I won't bore people with the details this Bitwise fund, which is on the OTC markets, is trading right currently. It's at a hundred percent greater than the asset value. So, if they have fifty bucks worth of uh, Bitcoin, the fund is trading at a hundred bucks right now. It, in the last six months, this premium to net asset value has been as high as three hundred and seventy percent greater than the total value of the crypto held. I feel, I feel like is, there's some there's some fast style accounting going on. Over here, I mean, going back to what you talked about last episode. This is the wild, wild west. I think the long and short of it is this space. This is just another example of how crazy this space is right now. There are people trying to get into these investments that don't understand them, that have mutual funds. So they're going, oh, it's a real pain for me to switch over to buy Bitcoin to do whatever. So I'm just going to buy this fund regardless of if the accounting actually matches up and if it makes sense. So I wanted to just clear that up for the listeners because... I feel like behind behind craziness like this, there's like someone smart that's gonna like make bank. And I'm curious oh, there's as to what that of, what, yeah. what that play is here. I mean, in this one, it's not boiler well, we've, room. We've talked about shorting in the past. Let's just say if you want exposure to the space, you don't get exposure to the space where this is like me going, Hey, I have two dollars of Bitcoin over here. Just give me four dollars and you can you can watch my $2 go up and down and I just, I'm going to pocket the rest. Like it's, it's the wrong way to get into the space, man. That is great. It's, it's just silly seeing this stuff. Right. And we, we look back in history sometimes with moments like this and it's like, it, you know, hindsight 2020, but this is just like site 2020. Exactly. This has like, Uh this has me a little frustrated uh, with the sec because clearly there's a demand for this space. 
And I know they're trying to do their due diligence to make sure it comes in and it's a, a reputable investment. But right now, there's way more demand than there is supply in the old school ETF mutual fund type world. And I think they should work to alleviate that because it's going to clear up um, some issues like this. I agree. And I actually, I think that's what Hester Pierce is kind of all about. I think that's why she's crying for, for ETFs to come, come about, not just for ETF sake, but so that we can do it in a way that's responsible and allow the demand to, to come in in a, in a way that's going to propel markets, propel in a, a controllable fashion, I should say, right? Markets as opposed to just letting it be Wild West OTC, you know, nonsense. Yeah. So, yep. All right. You got, you got fishbowl items? What no, man. On? What's in, what's in yours? Oh, man. It's so, some people can't drive and you shouldn't give them keys. You know that? I mean, I like people driving, but yeah. Like, tell as me a general concept, as a general concept, driving is good. I actually, uh, I just uh, finished um, Henry Ford's My Life and Work. Okay. Um, it's a, it's a, this, that's not what I meant to talk about, but I am. Um, <laughs> But it's worth give it a read. There is a as a forewarning, um, this was written, you know, 80 years ago, and there might be some slight um, racist tendencies and, uh, and non political correctness. But if you if you read it, just thinking about it from like a business context, I mean, this man is it's interesting. It's like, it's a it's an interesting read. That aside, conceptually driving is good. What I want to talk about, though, is talking about driving ships. Okay. And if you like, I've seen some people on the roads that can't parallel park very well, but if you can't do that, like don't be driving one of the largest like shipping containers in the world. Do you know where I'm going here? Yeah. I mean, this is ever given. And, uh, I think it was a dust storm and and a gust of wind, man. I mean, one gust of wind (laughs) does not a blockage make is what I say. But so if we look, let's go back over the past year, we can go further than that. But how many times have we been talking about supply chain disruptions over this past year? And I think I think the uh, fragility of our global supply chain is something that has got to be looked at. Right? Even going back to the Intel conversation, the ship shortage. I mean, we talked about uh, China getting shut down right due to COVID, the chip shortage, sawmills and the cost of lumber. Yeah. And yeah. now a gust of wind now causing the Suez Canal to be blocked up. This is why I'm bullish on teleportation. I mean, it just, there's, why are we dealing with You got an IPO? This? You got a SPAC for that? <laughs> I, yeah, I have a SPAC coming out. That will, I will announce that in a couple of weeks on the podcast. So, okay, here's what I'm going to get. Like, he facts. crashes into the side of the Suez Canal. Yep. And, uh, I mean, he doesn't just, like, throw the thing in reverse real quick and, like, make it all happen. I mean, he no, appears he to be... he can't do a good K-turn. He can do a good straight, saying, straight drive. Let me drop a few uh, just points of facts around the yeah. now situation. Um, so shipping company Evergreen has owns one of the largest uh, container ships in the world called the Ever Given. It was going down the Suez Canal, which I don't think most people know how important the Suez Canal still is to global trade. I think because often we, this gets back to the fragility point. I think often we forget how quote unquote old school, like a lot of our, our global trade still is. So Suez Canal, built in 1869, took like a decade to do it. I won't go too much into this, but it's in Egypt. For those of you that are geographically unaware, it's in Egypt. Um, It's a like a more direct route connecting the North Atlantic and Northern uh, Indian Ocean. So basically, if you want to Europe and Asia, if you want to ship between those two places, like this is the way to do it. Otherwise, you got to go around Africa, which takes a month. Difference here, right? Well, it's not an extra month. Uh, It could up to an extra month. Hey, 
34 days versus 43 days on average uh, between those two routes. And uh, Depends on where I read, going, bro. I read is this is uh, 13% of all global trade and no, 13% of oil and 10%, 10% of all global trade, something like That's that. Right. I mean, That's significant. Right. Uh, it is 50 ships a day here. go through this, representing like a, a little under $10 billion per day of cargo. And back, I think this is an interesting factor to add to that. So back when I was living in Europe about a decade ago, basically the cost to send a pair of an article of clothing, like call it a pair of jeans, from somewhere where it got manufactured in China to say like London was basically 20 cents. And boats have got bigger since then. And I imagine the supply chains are a little more efficient. So like think of how crazy that is in terms of, you know, we were talking about the lack of efficiency in some ways, but when you do it on a price per jeans basis, like that's less than a postage stamp uh, to take something halfway around the world. It's crazy. Yeah. So the world's basically just losing money right now at the point. The ship got stuck and blocking the entire canal. And so estimates, tell me if you've seen different estimates, but I've seen estimates. It's like $400 million an hour is are the, the amount of goods that are not being transported um, yeah. currently. It's crazy. To me, that that brings that to me. That's fragility. Like if you can have a ship with a bad parallel parker, bad gust of wind, whatever, whatever you want to throw this or chop this up to, that can basically say like the artery of global trade is now blocked um, because of a zephyr. I just went back to my SAT words, by the way. I mean, you know the minimalist movement, right? Like uh, this, I think this is a good way to shut down. You know, all the people that are frustrated with all the consumption going on in the world it, maybe this was a sabotage this was like a hit is that a real hypothesis no but anyway <laughs> but it could be <laughs> it could be it's gonna yeah. be now no one had this idea until now and now they're like listen this I is how we, we shut down to, the world it could be i do think I, I i think seriously that we need to rethink like the way a lot of this stuff works because um at least for me over the past year and maybe i was just uh, having blinders on before this, but it just seems like there's so many points of fragility that we take we take for granted, right? To your get to your jeans point, we take for granted the fact that like the jeans arrive in the Gap store, and yeah. we can order it over the internet, and then it arrives at my house. Like, and that is a yeah. simple thing, and that's how the internet has made things move so quickly. And we don't think about like a ship having to go through the Suez Canal, which the last time we thought about it was in history class, you know, like 20 years ago, whatever it was. That that's still the way that some of this stuff. Um, gets around the world and geopolitical tensions, a gust of wind or a, a drunk sea captain, right? Can make yeah. it such that the world shuts down. Man, this made me really want to uh, get over to Egypt though. I, I mean, I was just looking at those pictures of the canal being like that, that desert looks kind of peaceful. Um, you were just you in the Egypt of America, man. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was hunting fossils. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I'm not, uh, that worked up about it. I mean, so 10% of trade has to sit around for a week. It's going to have some impacts. I don't think there's an investment hypothesis here, but I don't invest in short-term trends. Um, I think it's fascinating, but I'm, I'm not really worked up about it. Where my brain went actually wasn't in like a, a short-term public company investment hypothesis of any note. This starts to get me, I know, I'm, I'm going to mention HVAC for a moment again. This is not directly related to HVAC. <laughs> but what I start thinking about is, uh, is more on what are some of the long-term trends that might we, we might want to look at startups for? Because uh, there are these 
like ancient ways of doing things that are hyper inefficient. Going back to me just buying a house, that process is ridiculous, right? And there are oh, a number of companies really trying to attack that. Yeah. But like when I look at how fragile supply chains are, it makes me say like I want to look at the batches of companies that are coming through Y Combinator or et cetera to see like who's trying to solve some of these issues because this obviously has to change like and not tomorrow, but over the next fifty years. Like if we go five decades in the future, the way that global trade is like is processed and happened is going to be different. If a gust of wind can shut down ten percent of what's happening in the world, that's you know what's so interesting though. Like I think my health hypothesis is almost 180 degrees different from yours to me the only way you get jeans from china to london for less than 20 cents is with these big boats and i bet you've done some research on these boats basically the bigger like there's an exponential return to the bigger they get so i can see them getting bigger and bigger and i can see that being a reason to expand canals and channels i don't really see this changing like all the computers in the world you still have to put these containers on a massive boat and you still have to go through uh one of a few passageways to get it from point a to point b yeah somebody's somebody's thinking inside the box is what's happening right here skippity doodah because i tell you this like they so they expanded the suez canal they spent like eight billion dollars right i think uh maybe five ten years ago sometime in the last decade five right and so yes, I understand that, but at some point, like a boat can only get but so big. But guess what can't get but so big? Space. Space is what I'm talking about. I actually do think that we're going to start thinking about ways to um, to circumvent, just like the airplane, right? If you think about, there was once a time where people that thought like you, right, said like the only way Close we can get from here to there. Losers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That caught me off guard. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the only way we can get from point A to point B might be like ships, right? Or even when you then you started flying and you say the only way we can get from point A to point B is to fly this way. But then you started thinking, well, what if we actually fly like over um, the North Pole instead? That's going to save us time. I think you have, to, you have to start thinking about how do we get from point A to point B in different ways. And I think when you look at what Virgin Galactic and like SpaceX, you know, et cetera, and more companies will probably come out. I think there's going to be ways that we, we can get there yesterday, right? Ignore the Concorde and how it crashed every 16 minutes when it tried this kind of stuff. It, but. Sounds, it sounds like you're uh, suggesting larger ships like going through the heart of Africa and they're just going to levitate over uh, the ground or something. I mean, this teleportation. Yeah, this doesn't really. There's different ways from point A to point B. Yeah, sure there is. Um, how about we launch everything into space and maybe. That's it what will... I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> There's going to be some kind of uh, intergalactic hyperloop. I hope. I I hope you're right. right you just wait. I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna be investing in in intergalactic hyperloop startups, and you might have to come visit me in the nursing home and pay for my wages. Hey, yeah, I'm all for you losing your money on terrible investments. <laughs> Not really, but uh, occasionally a few bucks makes for a good story. Uh, speaking of losing my money on terrible investments, can we uh, can we dive in the fishbowl for another item? Yeah, please. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about China, and then um, then I'll talk about my two Chinese investments, one of which we've discussed in previous episodes, and and the folly that has come therefrom. You wait, you went back for more? Is this uh, no? I was already Chinese? in. I, okay, I was already good. in something. Uh, so, uh, China differently. You've expressed your very clear opinion on Chinese accounting, um, in which you don't believe you can you can trust those books, right? Yeah. Uh, but so lately, Chinese stocks have been getting clobbered. 
like uh, at least on the U.S. market, um, U.S. listed Chinese stocks have been getting clobbered. There are two primary reasons, at least that I that I see as to why that's that's happening. One is there's a delisting pressure that's rolled over from the the Trump administration, yep. um, and as it seems like the possibility of the U.S. and the um, requiring the Chinese companies to fall under the auditing rules of the US. Um, a lot of US investors are basically saying like, that's probably gonna lead to a whole bunch of delisting of some of these companies. That's one. And the second is that the Chinese government is getting even more buck wild. Um, I'm only gonna say a certain phrase once because I'm not clear whether it's uh, racist or whether it's something that, that China actually goes off of. I just don't know. But, there, but I saw this phrase, it's wolf warrior diplomacy. Have you heard about this? No. Okay. So apparently it's a it's a it's a phrase that's based off of some like Chinese film, like martial arts film. Um, but anyway, but it's it basically means the Chinese government's getting like buck wild aggressive, is really what it means. Um, but I'm I'm only saying that phrase so you can like Google it because there there are some things you can come across yeah. like, by looking that up. I mean, wait, getting... what? Let me just ask for some clarity there because. I think you could argue going back for the last decade. I mean, there's all all sorts of stories about cities that have been built that are completely vacant and stuff. I mean, the Chinese government has been pretty aggressive for a long period of time. What's happening recently that has you even more uh, raising an eyebrow to this? Yeah, it's a, ever since last fall in the ant group stopping. Um, there have just been as a, as a, as it relates to the public equity markets, there's been like an acceleration of China's hand in its own yeah. companies. Um, so last fall, as we've talked about before, uh, Ant Group's IPO was stopped and China stopped that, right? Um, and they've also put fines in for a number of, of large uh, companies like Tencent, Baidu, the ride hailing company, uh, Didi, um, and some others. What they're saying is that it, they're anti-consumer. And so it's like an anti-monopoly play. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I do think there's a part of what you've stated before that's really like an anti you're getting too big for your pants play. Yeah. Like we don't feel comfortable with it, uh, with that level of uh, concentrated capitalism, I'll call it. Yep. And so and then uh, recently there was also um, there's some alleged I'm going to use that word alleged human rights violations in uh, in Xinjiang uh, province over in China. And so some of the retailers, H&M, Nike and Adidas have basically called China out on it. Yeah. And in China, so for H&M specifically, uh, there's been like there's boycotts and China has shut H&M off of its Internet. And so like you can't access. Right. I mean, there's there's stuff like that that's been happening. That's um, just feels even more aggressive and yeah. has investors spooked out the I own fantastic investment I made in uh, China Mobile. Right. That we've discussed before. Um, paid dividends. Actually, it didn't pay dividends. because I couldn't even hold it long enough to get to the ex dividend date. <laughs> So it literally did not pay dividends. Um, but another company is a Tal Education Group yeah. um, that, I, that I've owned. It was about 5% of my portfolio. It's now about 3%, not because of any profit taking. I'll tell you that much on my part. Um, but this, so over the last about three weeks, well, maybe four weeks, Tal Education Group has dropped 40%. It's a, it's like, the, it's just, I'm, I'm only naming that because I, I hold it, but like that's representative of some, like there's other Chinese companies that just started getting hit pretty hard. Yeah. So is this the, this is the US pressure over uh, more delistings happening or um, is this just nonsensical fear or what's going on here? I think it's, I think it's a combination of those two. I don't know if I okay. would call it nonsensical, but it's fear. It's a, yeah. it's like a fact-based irrationality 
maybe it's like it's okay. a way to think okay. about it right but it's getting hit pretty hard so uh, so anyway um and i i have some i want i'm going to transition this into what well, do you have any what are your thoughts there before i transition no nah, it's a tough it's a tough space um but uh, you've covered it yeah i'm sorry you're losing money i don't think you are I am. I don't desire. I that. can see. Your, I can see your face right now, Skippy. I can tell. Like I know what what uh, being genuine looks like, and whatever kind of smirky face you've got on right now. You're, you're not. You're not. You don't feel bad. Um. All right. So. So anyway. So I want to. I want to put that as a backdrop. But basically, um, one thing that that's got me thinking about. We've talked about this a bit. Is around like staying the course. Yeah. Right. Staying the course. Right. And not. Uh, not not selling when, when things start falling, right? But just staying the course. What I'm gonna say is important to me is always to dive into the, the data, right? When I wanna stay the course, you call that my false narrative that helps keep me calm. Whatever we wanna call it, I dove into the data. Yeah. So um, so my portfolio overall, um, over from its high of the year, which was sometime in February, is off about 13%, so like squarely in correction territory. Um, okay. not, not fully uncommon, right? But down about 13% from its high. And, uh, and I was, I started thinking about the Chinese stuff we just talked about in tall education groups specifically getting hit pretty hard. I was thinking about your real estate friends you mentioned that like yeah. had a hard time because of things like this and just human nature. And so I dove into the data and one just gives some facts of what I found in uh, back testing results, right? Of my portfolio to, to help get people like into the mindset of what we mean, stay the course and why stay the course. So yeah, you cool while I run through a little bit of data? Oh, please. This is good stuff. So I was looking through the back testing of my strategy over the last roughly 60 years. Um, and so my looking at like worst months, best months, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so my worst month of performance, right, over that time period is 21%, right? Down um, 21%? Down, yeah, down 21%. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry, that's that's important. <laughs> I was like, that's an impressive yeah. worst month, like, man. Did you not own right. stocks last March? Are, are um, you retired? Uh, like, yeah, exactly. holy cow. Um, so like that kind of thing, 20% of your investments being gone, what can feel like overnight can feel like a punch in the face. I think a lot of people felt this between February and March of last year. And, you know, whether you did panic or not, I think is important. So looking at my top three, so I said, what are the worst, sorry, the, the top worst uh, months, and I'll give the negatives here, right? 21, negative 21% was the top one, yeah. negative 19% was number two, and negative 18 and a half percent was those are like the top worst months, like, right, I've had. Yeah. Here's what's important. The when I look at the portfolio return for those years that the worst months happened, they're 54%, 33%, and 121% respectively. So positive 54%, positive 33%, and positive 121% respectively. I bring that up because these things happen. Portfolios get hit. It doesn't mean, and I'm not trying to say that keep a full blind eye to it. If you don't have faith or data backing or like a real philosophy that you're following. And you're just like throwing cash into the, you know, into the, into whatever's hot that time, you might want to reevaluate sometimes, but I'm just saying not to panic because if you do have a philosophy, you have to stay the course and stick to it. Um, my worst months have happened in some like great years. Um, and so just because that's happening right now does not mean that this is going to be a bad year necessarily for your portfolio, for my portfolio. And so that was helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for others to hear, but it was helpful for me to go through like the data and like reassure myself as I'm looking historically at what's happening. And it doesn't mean this year is also gonna be a 54%, 33% or 121% for me. It doesn't mean either way, but it's just important to stay the course because that kind of thing happens. 
Yeah, I wish I would have had the stats handy for a a more typical investment because like 120% yearly return as you're throwing out is uh, specific to a Dougal strategy that takes a little bit of risk, right? Think of it this way. I'd say, you know, the average return in the S&P 500 over the last, again, uh, 60 to 80 years is somewhere around 10% a year. You know, if if you're doing coin flips, you win seven out of 10 of those coin flips, somewhere between six and 7%. And uh, I actually, I mean, I'm just wired weirdly this way. I kind of love the drops because one, I'm still fairly young in my career. And so I actually want, I would love for the market to fall off a cliff, uh, be down 50% or more because I'm going to continue to buy into it. And that's going to pay dividends for me long-term. My parents who are retirement age are in good shape because the stock market was uh, cheap. A lot of the times they were making their, they were dollar cost averaging into it. Uh, The last decade for us Dougals, like that's hard to argue. It's hard to argue that we've been buying in in our like, you know, we're probably reaching our prime earning years. Um, we've been buying into a cheap market. We haven't been. Now, I have been because I'm a value investor and I'm not buying heavy US stocks right now. But you are just throwing your money to, again, like basically to the dumpster, right? Well, but, you know, going off of what you said before, the market generally goes up, right? So the, the market might be cheap relative to what it's going to be 20 years from now. Over yeah, any, that's There's true. no 20-year period right in the history of US stock market that it hasn't made money. Correct. Yeah, that's good perspective. There are also are. I mean, a lot of people don't know this. There are stock markets that have completely gone to zero. There's yes. no guarantee, you know, like um, of that. And yeah. this might be. Oh, I think you have another thought there. I, well, I, was, I was going back to your uh, your drops um, piece and liking drops. I'm uh, excited. Feels like too too strong of a word, but a little bit I am for when, uh, when the Dougal's indicator says that it's, it's going to be the stop of start of a multi-year, right? Because yeah. the, the, like the big, that the big kahuna where you get back in at that bottom, I'm good with the drops like we're having right now are just like annoying to me, to be honest. Cause if we're not doing the big drop, I want to see it going up. Like that's kind of where I am. Like these, these drops that are like 10%, 15% down what's happening right now is not like what was happening a year ago, right? Like a year ago, I also enjoyed that drop. Like there was yeah. a lot that that I grabbed up um, at that point that was off of my typical model stuff, right? Picked up a lot of a lot of uh, things that were seventy five percent off, like yep. discount. I'm talking about H and M, right? I was all up in the H and M of stocks, like <laughs> grabbing stuff off the racks, right? But like that doesn't happen very frequently. Um, but those big drops, all in. But things right now, like like uh, I think Zoom is something like fifty percent off its high. And its high was like 700% above like a probably an yeah. overvalued price, right? Like things right now just aren't yeah. So in, it's, in where I shop, where you shop. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it might be like to use your Zoom example, I'm using uh, rough math here, but that still might mean it's 350% above where it was, which isn't screaming cheap, right? It's exactly. uh, by no means. I hear you. I like that perspective. I do think it's really important. And that's one thing I want to continue to emphasize is like, I don't trade. I don't do anything every week. I just show up with Dougals and we talk about interest and stuff, but um, that's not influencing how I make my investment decisions. And I hope it's not for the listeners either. A couple of things in the fishbowl for me. Tell me where you want to go. One, our amazing listeners hit us with a Ramsey article that, oh my goodness, is insane. 
And two, I got to give some love to TikTok investors. So which one of those do you want to hit first? Let's start with Ramsey. This is just something else. Speak okay. Up. So, uh, man, I, a couple of weeks back, I had a mini rant on just, uh, dove into the number one podcast in America. I mean, there's no, like, there's nothing more to it than that. Dave Ramsey is a popular figure when you talk about personal finance and investments. I threw this article out on the Twitter. Uh, so first, uh, to get in touch with us, there's Skippy Dougals at gmail.com. And there's also at Skippy Dougals on Twitter. Um, hit up either one of those for listeners mail. We tr- truly have been blown away with like the questions and also the intelligent responses that we're getting to some of this stuff. Yes. So this came based on my mini rant, mostly about how I think there's a lot of solid financial advice happening there. But I was just amazed at like this. This is like a course analogy, but kind of cult like mentality of um, some of the things happening there. And some of the advice that I were given was it lacked nuance. It was just like, you do this, you follow this playbook. There was no additional deep dive. Yep. And so I don't want to really go blow by blow with this article, but it is long and it details years of kind of problems within that organization. So Ramsey Solutions is now a huge company uh, with thousands of employees, right, Dougals? In a $42 million headquarters. And the last thing I like to do is to talk trash about people. I try and uh, steer clear of that. But there are some challenges. And if you're giving money to Dave Ramsey, you might want to reconsider or at least be educated about what's happening behind the scenes there because it doesn't seem like a solid corporate culture by any means. Yeah, I, I just check out the, the, the article. It's on the Twitter feed. To your point, I think there's no point in going into the detail of the article because then we'll start just getting into some stuff that we don't need to talk about. I think that's yeah. certainly, but, it's, but it's worth knowing what you're getting into. And it wasn't... Uh... Gosh, there was some treatment of employees, which I just uh, is really frustrating stuff. It yeah, it doesn't seem like he's necessarily living by the values that he is claiming to live by. And that's unfortunate. So we'll move on. That's that's uh, more than anything. I wanted to wrap that up and thank the listeners for sending that our way because it, it was a really fascinating read. So Dougals, can I go to, you know, I'm pushing for this to be a weekly. I know you are. And weekly it's, it's feature a, on the even pod. if you didn't push it i mean it's starting it's it's already become a tri-weekly so it's creeping right. it's creeping anyway i'm, I'm gonna off. pull up the favorite thing i saw this week this is a little tutorial for those wondering of how you turn your stimulus check of 1400 bucks 1400 into three million in uh is this in 100 days something like that dude goes and simple you formula weekends off so uh here we go it's 39 seconds uh stay for the whole thing you're gonna enjoy it I'm gonna show you how to touch a milli with only the $1,400 stimmy. First things first, start off with HFX. All right, step number one, go ahead and start off with $1,400. Step number two, go ahead and increase your count by 8% every day. Step number three, set a goal. I set mine for 100 days. Now go ahead and reinvest 100% of that until the 100 days has passed or your goal has passed. Include weekends, no. Calculate now. And as you can see by Friday, August 6, 2021, I have gained over $3 million. Is that easy? You want to provide some commentary there? So what's happening is he typed in his stimulus amount. <laughs> then he, he did an assumption of daily compounding at 8% a day. Then he decided 
that he only had a hundred days, but he was going to take weekends off. Jiggles. He doesn't want to be working. He doesn't so want to be not playing with the crypto. Like not that's just too hard. Can you imagine if someone told me I could come out at 8%, I'd be happy to work on a Saturday to make it extra, whatever million bucks. Right. But no, he can't work weekends. And in a hundred days, again, taking weekends off, he's worth 3 million bucks. Like why <laughs> are more people not doing this? This is a piece of cake. It's, it's just like saying, like, here's a quick way to, to win a million dollars. We're in March Madness times. So I'm just going to pull up this bracket and I'm going to invest $1,400 in the winner of this game. And then I take 100% of the profits and I invest them in the winner of the next game. Right? <laughs> How do you just assume it's... 8% dailies? <laughs> so, uh, again, oh, man, I've been invested uh, 15, 20 years. I could probably... When's the last time you made more than 8% in a day in a somewhat diversified way? I mean, I've certainly had some individual equities uh, jump crazy like that. But 8% a day is practically impossible for one day. 8%. I'm just I'm pulling up on a wiki right now for the Dow, right? The, the best yeah. <laughs> all time. So 8% would be the 18th best day ever of the, of the Dow. <laughs> Right. So you basically, if you're doing that for a hundred days, you're now making like you're, you're setting records like on the Dow every day, but he's taking weekends off, man. So oh, I forgot now... what the weekends <laughs> off, man. Like uh, I just I can't it. get enough of this. And uh... I love it. it's so good. So good. That's so good. All right. You want, you want to wrap the fishbowl with some IPO chatter, please. Robin hood and SoFi allowing for people to invest in IPOs alongside wall street funds. What are your thoughts on this? Gosh, it's fun to see. Let's call this innovation. Like it's fun to see innovation happen. Yes. You know, like it, we've talked about how how few people in America actually own equities and how historically, if you have a wise investment strategy, equities are a great way to generate wealth. Um, so that's good. Um, I meant to pull the stats on IPO performance. Um, it's no guarantee. You know, it's not a guarantee. Uh, there's a lot that go bust. And so uh, I don't invest in IPO because it's generally a riskier investment. Uh, and the majors and I think about it as a riskier investment is you just don't have strong established history. Like we've we talk, we've talked about your strategy. We've talked about my strategy. One of the core tenets of both of our strategies is pretty much a 10-year track record of doing something really positive, right? Mine's more based on the fundamentals. Yours is more based in the growth of the stock price, but a 10 year track record when someone's a company has been through a coronavirus or a great financial depression or whatever else and made it to the other side, that speaks to stability uh, going forward that you just don't get with an IPO. I would not recommend buying IPOs. If you're going to purchase a newer public company, I would say to at least wait six months because you've got the lockup period that exists for, for employees at that time. And th those first six months are going to be volatile. I'm not even saying to, to do it at six months, but at least wait six months. The thing that I do like about this, oh, you're, you're going to well, shoot no. So down. let me tell this back. Uh, let me weave in a story here, right? Um, so I've been reading The New New Thing by Michael Lewis. Um, and at this point, it's 10 years old. It's the old, old thing. But I, I would strongly recommend it. Is it 20 years old? Yeah, I think so, it came out in like 2001, uh, 2002 or something like that. There we go. It's like even worse. Uh, so Jim Clark is the key person in this figure, but largely the book is about Silicon Valley, right? Jim Clark 
started Silicon Graphics and turned it into a billion dollar business and was kind of pissed off about the way he was treated by the venture capitalists because he was learning the game, right? And so then he I started he, sorry to interrupt, But I, I think he's the only uh, billion dollar three, Peter. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, I, I would bet, right? And um, so then he started next Netscape. At this point, he's already rich. He's not like the richest person in the world, but he's one of the richest people in the Valley. So he completely changes the approach to how people take venture in Netscape. And he manages to keep a lot more of the company. Two points on Netscape, but I swear it ultimately ties back to your IPO. So one, Mark Andreessen is just some college kid out of the University of Illinois. Illinois, excuse me. What's so fascinating about this is, and I think Mark Andreessen is a super smart guy, but just you think about how much role luck plays. Like, I bet there were 500 other people in the Valley that had Mark Andreessen skills at that point in time, but he ended up at Netscape. And now he's been a central figure in the Valley. So fascinating book, fascinating piece. Anyway, back to the IPO thing. Jim Clark's engineers, his good buddies that built Silicon Graphics and missed out on Netscape. A few of them knew that Netscape was the next big thing, even though they weren't in the loop. So they bought the IPO, right? And and tripled their money on day one. And so that's the uh, appeal of the IPO is the first day pop, right? Now, we should probably kick direct listings to another episode, but I think there's ways to be more efficient in the IPOs, and that seems to be gaining steam right now, which hopefully means uh, it's priced more fairly when it starts, which would reduce the appeal, which might make it easier to follow your advice here, Dougals, which is steer clear, let it, um kind of get established in the market and do a fair assessment of its value at that point yeah even going use going to your um your netscape example if you're going to buy ipos the power in something like what it seems like so and Robinhood are trying to do is that when when you see a headline today that says that doordash or airbnb's ipo doubles the first day right or netscape yeah. doubles the first day they're using the listing price as the base price from which it doubles or triples. And so the listing price might, to keep the math easy, the listing price might be $50 per share and it might open at $150 per share. Yeah. So as your, your typical retail investor, what you're buying at is $150 per share. And so I just, I don't want people thinking that the tripling means the open price is $150 per share and it goes up to 450. No, it's $50 going up to 150. And so what, what SoFi and Robinhood are saying is that what they want you to be able to do is to buy at that $50 price, which is the price that Wall Street funds are buying at. Yeah. So when it does triple, you get some of that triplage. Um, and that's what they're trying to do. I don't know exactly how they're architecting that, but that's what they're trying to do. So that's where I think there's momentum to changing that entire model. Because yes. if, it's, if it's priced at 50 for Goldman Sachs and the people that they bring in, um, basically before it formally goes live and then it immediately shoots to 150, a lot of those folks get out yes. and it, it goes the other way too. So I don't want to always imply like you're, you're going to make money the first day because sometimes it gets cut in half, right? If you go the direct listing route, it's more of a take all the orders from all the people, regardless of their status as a 
professional investor or their relationship to a Wall Street bank, and then actually match that supply and demand and set the price fairly. Uh, where Bill Gurley, who is also a super smart guy and, and one of my favorite people in the Valley, yeah. where he talks about that dichotomy of the 50 to 150 price range we're talking about is the true owners of the company, like the founders of the company, often get screwed if the true value is 150 and they sold a bunch of stuff to these Wall Street banks and the Wall Street banks turn around, they make $100 a share in hours when these people, their blood, sweat and tears for years and years. And who knows how other, how many other businesses they've been a part of that have failed and everything else. Like you're screwing the actual employees of that company in that model, which is bad. So I think as with anything, there's just buzz around IPOs because we're in a bubble and we've talked about how many IPOs are happening along with the SPACs and everything else. I don't know that this is, is this a true strategy by Robinhood and SoFi? Is it a desire to just expand kind of what's available to your investing public? Or is this pretty much marketing to say, there's a lot of noise around this right now and we want to be at the forefront of those press releases? I think it's mostly probably going to end up being marketing because to your point, I think the market is going to like the general IPO market is going to start going more toward direct listings and other, um, other ways for, for companies to go public. I think they have to. Um, and so this ends up, I think ultimately being marketing, especially for Robinhood announced it, what two days ago, three days ago. And then SoFi yeah. came out with something like a day or two later. I the mean, day, it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's a, this is, this is not like some, uh, some killer app feature right that is proprietary technology or, or or deals or something like that that anyone's coming out with i think it's primarily just gonna be marketing but i think the concept is is really is interesting and telling for what the future of retail and institutional investor relationship might look like for ipos yeah but uh gosh i mean do you want your average retail investor with more access to that uh there's like there's like the free market stance here but then there's that. also the some of this is really hard and really opaque I don't know how it's more harmful for someone to have access to the $50 and the $150. That's where I kind of come up. Yeah, that's a good point. I like right? that. I, I think it's ultimately going to be, it's ultimately probably going to be like nothing and meaningless, like in the long run. But I think that this is better than the the current, you know, stance. Because there are even some like, um, I'll say Airbnb, for example, that is one I'm, I still would want to wait the six months, as I mentioned before. But that's a company that I actually, I may at some point own for the long term. I will not buy it at its current valuation. There was like a chance that I might have wanted to buy it at the at its initial listing price. Then it ended up like tripling its initial listing price before it went public so that it could, to your point, gain, so the company could gain more of the money because it seemed like there was demand. And then it tripled, like when it actually hit the market, it was like triple that. And so, I mean, that, that company went from something like a, a $16 billion valuation about um, a year ago to over a hundred billion dollars, like by the time it actually hit the market, right? In a, yeah. in a nine month span, right? And like that, that's kind of silly, but like a $16 billion number, like Dougal's might've been all in because I, I think that that, like that company at some point, 15, 20 years from now could very easily be worth $160 billion. It, ha- it just so happened it was worth $160 billion like nine months later. <laughs> and, and that, that I can't play with. Well, let's let's be careful with your use of worth here, but uh, okay. valued at. Sorry, <laughs> valued at. Sorry. Uh, when did they go public again? Was that last year, December? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting piece there. Again, Bill Gurley is a, a early shareholder there. Um, they early Gurley. Uh, the bookings on Airbnb came back much stronger and much earlier in the COVID world. And it makes perfect sense. But you think about, let's rewind to the eighties. Like no one thought there was alternative to hotels. So in a pandemic, it was like, you're just not going to use a hotel. Well, now all of a sudden you have this additional competitor. That's a private home in a lot of cases that is much safer. Like, um, so I think that really was one of the factors stoking that valuation safety. Yes. But, and also work from home. Because if you're like, I can work from anywhere, now I can have a home on the beach or in the mountains or, you know, for a month with my family and you can work from anywhere. So I, I think yep. there's the part of it is a safety component. And I think part of it is the fact that you're going to be working from a home and you're not going to work from a hotel for some extended period of time. Um, Vegas tried to actually pull pull something like that where they were having like a, they were doing this like work from home concierge service, right? Where you come and get like free drinks and all this stuff. Like that's not going to work right? Like that, that's not a thing that people are going to do. Did I think about it? Not going to tell you, but that's not a thing <laughs> people are going to do, but going to go work from somewhere. Like we went to, uh, we went to Florida for a couple of weeks, right? Over the winter time and like, and stayed at a house. Right. But we're not going to do that with a hotel. Yeah. So, for sure. yeah. So I, I think this is going to be, I think it's a, it's a good move by them, primarily marketing, but I think it's a, I think it signifies something that's going to shift in the market overall. And I like it. Nice. That's a wrap. Hit us up on iTunes. Give us some reviews, homies. And uh, Skippy Diggles on Twitter. Peace.